As a leader of your company, you must stay up to date with your strategies and execution or risk obsolescence. Welcome to the Finnovate Show, financial services innovators bringing you the future today. And now, here's your host, Jerry Purcell. It's the Finnovate Show, brought to you by Innovation 360 Group. I'm Jerry Purcell. Get ready to think about your biggest challenges and capitalize on your biggest opportunities after this. Executives depend on external consultants to fill knowledge and experience gaps or to have an experienced mind audit their thinking. The Innovation 360 Group brings together a wide range of proven thought leadership from around the globe and cost-effectively makes it available to you. Get the insights, advice, and systems you need to succeed. Learn more at www.innovation360.com. Our guest today is John Rossman. John was an executive at Amazon, where he played a critical role in launching and scaling the Amazon marketplace business, which now accounts for more than 50% of all units shipped by the organization. Since leaving, John has focused his efforts on innovation and strategy advice, assisting clients to innovate and grow, and as a keynote speaker. John is the author of several books, including The Amazon Way, Amazon's 14 Leadership Principles, and has a weekly newsletter called The Digital Leader Newsletter. Today, John and I will talk about how organizations can draw from his experience at Amazon and what they need to do. In doing so, we will draw from John's book, The Amazon Way. John, welcome to the show. Jerry, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell me about your days at Amazon. What was it like there and and what kind of challenges were sort of present at the time? Yeah, so I was at Amazon pretty early on. So I was there from early 2002 through late 2004. A holiday period 2002 was the first billion-dollar quarter for Amazon. Today, it's about a $480 billion revenue organization. So you can see just from that metric alone how different it is. At that point, 90% of the business was books, music, video, and it was almost 100% first-party sales, meaning Amazon was the retailer of record. I think there was 14 fulfillment centers at the time, and it was, it was very different from a business complexity standpoint. The things that are the same, though, are very much how Amazon thinks about leadership. What does it mean to be a good Amazonian? How do they think about customers, the, the leadership principles, and problem solving? And so those are some of the things that, that I took from then. And the other interesting thing about when I was at Amazon, it was literally the, we were, headcount was flat. And so to help launch the marketplace business, we had to go make our case to several of our internal shareholders and, and claw some, some headcount to help launch the marketplace business for the headcount. So obviously very, very different constraints than what Amazon operates in today. 
one of my recollections from the from the news of the day was that quite a bit of whatever revenue was generated was put back in the business. So uh, at least that's what I recall reading about. Is that, is that sort of part of the model as well? Uh, and and that's continued essentially since then, right? And so some of the things that aren't well understood about Amazon is that on a unit economic basis, on a per order basis, on a per unit basis, Amazon has been profitable almost since the very beginning. Um, but to the point you're making, what they've chosen to do over the mostly you know 27-year history of the organization is just reinvest that profit instead of reporting it as profit. So they've invested, you know, in all sorts of things, uh, fulfillment centers, obviously, in all sorts of infrastructure, uh, AWS infrastructure, and all sorts of other lines of business. And that's really how Amazon operates today is as an operating set of companies that run on a very for-profit, trying to optimize basis and as a portfolio manager of investing into smaller ideas that might be the big idea of tomorrow. And um, they do report corporate profit today, but still plow the vast majority of their operating profit into R&D and into investment. So why was Amazon so different from the rest? And what sort of things would you point to to describe that? Boy, that's a, that's a big question. I think that there's no simple answer into, you know, what's different about Amazon or how did they get here, you know, or, or anything like that. But I think fundamentally, Amazon is built on three or four kind of core concepts. One is around customer centricity, what they call customer obsession, right? And that they they really make decisions, they think through problems, and their mindset is always customer first versus competitor focused. Uh, the second is around thinking big. And while you may start with a, a small concept or a small start of a business, you're always thinking big, you're always thinking about scale, and you're always thinking of the future, but realizing like, hey, how we increment our, our way there. Um, and then invention, and that Amazon, both from an actual invention standpoint, technology, but also in their willingness to reinvent themselves, they've always in, uh, believed in invention. And then the fourth concept I'd, I'd, I'd add is around operational excellence, and that Amazon has very much an operator mindset and believes in operational excellence in those things that should be scaling and impact the customer experience. They, they set a, a very high bar for themselves and for partners relative to hitting customer expectations. And so I think that those four concepts kind of start the story, but they don't, they don't finish the story, right? So you and I started off talking about, hey, Amazon has invested the vast majority of their profits back into the business over their history. Well, that's really an element of, of investing in the long term versus in the short term and trying to optimize in the long term versus optimizing in the short term. And so I think that element of patience and investment 
is also something that's very unique relative to Amazon. But I, I could go on, and I think that's kind of part of the conversation today. But those things strike me as some of the, the fundamental cultural fabric that separate Amazon or, or differentiate it in many ways from most other organizations. Yeah, it's 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 a hard thing to do nowadays as an executive to to focus on something other than quarterly results. So thinking out in the long term is quite unique. I actually came across some research over the course of the last couple of weeks that says that those, you know, family in air quotes, family-owned organizations actually do much better than some of the others because they do have the the luxury of being able to think over the long run. And, and it sounds like Amazon has done uh, done the same sort of thing. I, I think, especially for healthy, successful organizations, short-termism creeps in. It's it's not it's not a a big lightning bolt that happens, but it starts creeping into the decisions and the resource allocations and what we prioritize. The, the second leadership principle, so there's, there's 16 leadership principles uh, at Amazon now. The second is called ownership, and it reads that leaders are owners. They think long-term and don't sacrifice long-term value for short-term results. They act on behalf of the entire company beyond just their own team. They never say, that's not my job. Well, that second element there about thinking long-term and never sacrificing long-term value for short-term results is part of their articulation about how they are going to be careful about that that element of short-termism. And and just keep a sharp eye on, it doesn't say that we don't care about short-term results. They just don't want to sacrifice long-term value for short-term results. That's that's an important nuance uh, there. They do care about short-term results, just not at the cost of long-term value creation. Cool. So... In reading your your book, The Amazon Way, uh, there are 14 principles there. And I think that some may uh, come to the conclusion that uh, they just need to take these 14 principles and apply them to their company and everything's going to be just ducky, you know? Tell me why that's not so. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a few aspects uh, why I'd say it wouldn't be uh, just ducky. Um, in no way have I ever propose or suggested that these are the right leadership principles, either in individual nature or in entirety for any other company. But what I do believe is a good concept is figuring out like, well, what do we believe in? How do we consistently make decisions? What do we prioritize? How do we hold each other accountable? How do we make decisions? And so in the Amazon way, one of the appendixes is about building your own leadership principles, right? And I kind of propose like, this is how I would go about it. We didn't rush to create our leadership principles at Amazon. When I was there, they actually weren't codified, right? We talked about them, but they weren't written down. We were practicing them. We were hammering them out. It was a couple of years after I left Amazon when they codified the leadership principles. And one of the underlying or, or meta lessons to take from that is that consistent, we'll call them leadership principles that they can be called tenants, they can be called uh, guiding concepts, they can be called a lot of different things. But one of the things that I believe a value of having a set of well-balanced leadership principles is that it helps to scale an organization, right? If we can all have the same fundamental orientation to 
how we make decisions, how we work together, how we hold each other accountable, what we prioritize, then guess what? We can work better independently and still make really good decisions and have a common culture. And that's really the value of having uh, a set of leadership principles. But it really takes delicate thought about what do we really believe in and for leaders to actively demonstrate those leadership principles, not just to give them lip service, right? So your leadership principles can't just be a poster on the wall and we pull them down once in a while when it's most convenient. No, they have to be used, especially when it hurts, we have to use our leadership principles. So those are more of what I would propose to somebody is, hey, here's Here's a set of leadership principles. They they definitely make a difference at Amazon. I think there are some things that each one of these leadership principles can help us think through. But underneath all of that is, well, what are your leadership principles? And what I find at most organizations is that different leaders have a different set of principles within an organization, or they have no principles at all. And so it's just basically like kind of what's the priority of the day kind of rules rules and culture just happens to be based off of how we've developed over time. The world is moving fast. It's difficult to keep up. Your executive team routinely needs new ideas to keep them ahead of the competition. Imagine having a plan in place in 30 days to focus your innovation efforts improve customer experience, accelerate your move to digitization, or increase speed to market. Our guide to accelerating your innovation agenda provides you with insights and time-saving resources to plan your path forward. Contact Jerry to book a quick call or for your complimentary copy at www.linkedin.com backslash in backslash Jerry Purcell. G-E-R-R-Y-P-U-R-C-E-L-L or email Jerry at jerry.persil at innovation360group.com. One of the sort of tenants, although not one of the principles necessarily, but one of the tenants you talked about was to optimize over the long run. And one of the concepts that I've heard you talk about is uh, relates to sort of focusing on the friction and then little I and big I. Tell me about little I and big I. Yeah, so, you know, little I, little invention, and big I, big invention, it, 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 you know, concepts, everything's on a continuum, right? There's no black or white, you know, what is innovation? Well, innovation is, is simply the ability to envision something that's new or better, uh, hopefully that benefits the customer or your business, the ability to test and to implement that, and the ability to create uh, business value out of that concept, right? And so if you think of that as innovation, well, then these ideas can be either smaller things that just help improve operations, help help remove a, a source of frustration for a customer, or they can be big game-changing business models, products, and services for us. And so there's, there's a continuum there. So friction is the, the name that, that we used at Amazon, and it's the name that a lot of people use for just the little things that we ask our customers, our partners, our employees to do, because we haven't quite finished or perfected 
our product or our service, right? We haven't made it slippery. We haven't made it super easy to use. And at Amazon, you know, friction, especially when you have millions and millions of transactions, little tiny pieces of friction make a big difference, both in the customer experience as well as in operational performance. So friction is just finding all of those little defects or things we ask others to do because we haven't automated it or uh, improved it and made it made it slippery. So Amazon is just this operational excellence machine that continues to find both little, a lot of little ways to improve the customer experience and improve operations. Sometimes these actually end up in very big programs. So think about the concept of returns, right? So a customer orders a product and they want to return it. What most companies do is they try to they try to make that slightly difficult for a customer to do. Well, if we truly have customer obsession, then we're focused on actually making that easier with the core belief that if customers trust that buying from you is going to be easy in every aspect, including returns or problems, then over the long run, they're going to come and do more business with you over the long run. So Amazon has has innovated and scaled returns in so many ways, right? Think of all the different ways that you can return items at Amazon now, right? You can you can drop it off at a UPS store. You can drop it off at a at a uh, many of the retail partners. You can drop it off at an Amazon bookstore. You can drop it off at a Whole Foods. You can have the items picked up at your doorstep. You can drop them off at partners, and you don't even have to put it, re- return it in the box, right? You just bring the item in a QR code, and and they take the item away from you. That type of unconventional thinking about removing all of the little things that get in the way of truly satisfying customers is is what the notion of friction is. And I really think it sets the basis for how we innovate in most organizations because not every company has either the opportunity or is ready to really think about breakthrough concepts, breakthrough business models. But every company can work to to serve their customer better and to improve operational excellence. And that's why focusing on friction is is a a triple win because we we make it better for customers. We actually improve operational results and we build the culture, the capacity for actually making change happen. So again, that's a principle. I I would find it hard to find an executive that would disagree that that's important. You're absolutely right. I mean, they they will never disagree with it, but will they allocate resources, allocate time, and truly push through all of the internal stakeholders that it takes to make change happen? That's where you know most companies kind of give up along the way because. You know, you have to hold others accountable. You have to be willing to allocate resources for it. You you oftentimes have to redo things because the prior capability won't won't get you to where you need to go. And you just become kind of comfortably numb with the the status quo, right? You aren't measuring correctly to identify where all of these little pieces of friction are. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because that's one of the things that Amazon does is it measures the noise. Right. You know, you know, Jerry, I get asked a lot about like, well, you know, what was different about your or what was your day to day life like at Amazon? 
And it was always about metrics. We were always, we would spend more time defining what the right metrics were for a new product or new service or new geography or a new capability. We'd spend more time defining what the metrics would be versus like what the actual requirements were. Because we knew no matter what we launched with, like if we didn't have the metrics in place, we wouldn't be on a path for that continuous improvement. And we would always be adding more metrics to understand failure and how we were operating. Most companies design their metrics, A, they want fewer versus more, right? Give me a green, yellow, red, I need it really simple. Um, We did the exact opposite. We would always have more metrics. And secondly, most companies build metrics to in some way kind of measure the average or the mean. And in some ways, what they're trying to do is kind of pat themselves on the back, right? Hey, we're doing a good job. Amazon was the exact opposite, right? Like we would always be focusing metrics on where the failure was, where the friction was at the edge of the distribution curve, because that's where the opportunity for improvement lies, creating high tensile SLAs so that we could hold ourselves extremely responsible for making the worst customer experience still a great customer experience. And if the worst customer experience is still a great customer experience, then you know that the average customer experience is really, really good. So that was always our mindset around metrics. And it really set the basis for so many things at Amazon and is really where I start with most companies is like, well, how do you measure customer experience? How do you measure operational excellence today? And how do you use metrics as a verb to help hold each other accountable and have decisions about removing a piece of friction, improving something. Yeah, measure and then talk about it, right? Yeah, I I, I, I always say you, you need to make metrics a verb, right? Like it's always about like action. Just having the metrics is interesting and can be insightful, but it's like, what do you do with them? Like how do you drive improvement? So you have to make metrics a verb. So, uh, so I'm an executive today and I'm unhappy with the performance of my organization. What should I do? Well, it would really depend upon the basis for where that perspective is coming from. Is it coming from kind of poor or mediocre customer feedback? Is it coming from declining growth and, and, and profitability compression? Or is it coming more internally? Like, you know, people aren't collaborating effectively or aren't striving for operational excellence. So, so I'd want to be clear on that, but I always start with customers, right? Like, well, what are your customers saying about you? And, you you know, start from that customer perspective and then bring it, uh, bring it internally. And the way you measure that, as we've already talked about, can be one of the big unlocks. One of the most important decisions any executive makes is around resource allocation, where do you allocate resources? And so I oftentimes like to understand, you know, how much of resource allocation is in just optimizing for today's business, this quarter's results, versus how much of resource allocation is towards future businesses, right? Horizon two, horizon three, they're sometimes referred to, right? But it's it's not about optimizing today's business, about planting seeds and and 
building a perspective on what the future would be. And so that can be the other source oftentimes of internal dissension in an organization is they recognize like all we are doing today is optimizing for today. We are not spending nearly enough time or attention to what the future would be. And so I, I oftentimes like to understand kind of where's resource allocation if I get a discussion like, God, we just aren't feeling great about today's business or about today's team. So there are a couple of sort of common mistakes you've listed there, but are there, are there other things that companies do wrong? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, many. <laughs> and especially around, like if we just talk about, if we're just talking about innovation, right? How do you identify an interesting idea? How do you test an interesting idea? And then how do you create business value out of it and scale it, right? So like that's my simple definition of what innovation is. Especially successful companies today in that concept, uh, what they're not willing to do is really have testable ideas and allowing those testable ideas to not reach a level of success, right? The, 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 we call this, you know, failing fast and failing forward. I don't like that word failure because it has huge negative connotations to it in, in, in many ways, right? The first is that no good leader wants to say I'm failing or I had a failure here. And secondly, it's oftentimes used as an excuse for sloppy execution. When we're talking about failing fast and failing forward, what we're talking about is experimentation, right? We want to test something and have an A or B result. And so I try to pivot towards a, a, a language of experimentation in a business. And so what big successful companies don't understand is how to experiment, how to define a hypothesis, how to how to understand the elements that need to be tested, the, the riskiest aspects of it, and how do you quickly and cheaply, in, in as rude a manner as possible, test those things out and then proceed forward. So that whole concept of experimentation is one of the things that larger organizations, especially successful ones, don't understand correctly. One of the things they do is they have processes that are geared just for scaled businesses, things like procurement, things like legal, things like HR and recruiting, right? All of those have specific requirements and processes and ways you interact. They only work for scaled businesses. If you apply those processes to small experiments, what happens? You slow them down, right? You, you burden them with too much overhead and what they're getting completely wrong is those processes are trying to optimize for cost efficiency and risk mitigation versus when we're experimenting, the number one thing we are trying to optimize for is speed, speed to learning. All of those processes fail us for that. And so those are things that big companies get wrong. And I, and I can continue to go on. Well, like one other thing I would men mention is that big companies tend to fall in love with a business case, right? They start the process with understanding what the business case is for a new product or new service. Understanding addressable market, understanding the size of the problem, that's interesting. But if it's an, an early idea and you don't understand how customers are going to react to it, what the adoption is, what your unit economics are, how it's going to work in any way, well, then trying to start with a business case is a 
is a complete mistake because you won't ex- you you won't pursue interesting use cases and interesting ideas where you actually have no idea like what the potential market is. So there's there's a starting set of uh, things that big companies get wrong when it comes to innovation. One of the other things, just related to sort of the Amazon way, is there a, a number of sort of tactics that are mentioned, and one of them is this six-page memo. And the six-page memo, you know, can 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 generate significant um, you know positive impact on projects and like that. But if people turn it into a process, then it's just like your business case you're talking about. It's going to go down the road, and people are going to spend a whole lot of time writing something, but there's not going to be the thought uh, you know, behind it. And I think one of the challenges that I've sort of observed is that a lot of organizations sort of glom onto these ideas and they make it a process. And then once it's a process, you're done. Yeah, yeah. What they forget is they forget the reason we're doing it. Like, what's the value we're trying to get into it? And they just, you know, become sheeple and just like follow the process, right? Without trying to get the value out of it. So the 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 concept you're mentioning is that the underlying concept is is that writing concepts out, writing problems out, writing situations out is a much more powerful way for both thinking through something as well as communicating complex situations to others. And so instead of using PowerPoint as a way of abbreviating, Amazon believes in this process of writing. So that you mentioned kind of the six-pager, they write future press releases, uh, they write FAQs, they do other things that help teams understand and communicate with each other in a much more durable and thoughtful manner than just using uh, PowerPoint. The key to that communication, though, is, isn't just like, oh, that we're writing out. Because when people, when when teams first start doing this, what they do is they write with too much complexity, right? They don't. And, and so the element, the essence of what you're trying to get to is called clarity, right? Clarity is both completeness of thought plus simplicity of thought, extremely difficult to get to, right? That's a high bar of writing, especially in a complex business situation or technical situation, making it both complete as well as simple to understand. So these narratives, even in expert teams who have a lot of experience, they take iterations to do. And so being patient and understanding and being willing to spend the time up front in writing these out is the discipline. But this is what helps avoid spending time and really expensive resources down the road in building and experimenting because we spend so much time up front in understanding and debating the fine-grained aspects of what the potential could be, how are we going to experiment along it, how are we going to measure it, who's the customer, what's the job they're trying to get done. That's the whole element. Um, I get asked a lot, well, what is Amazon's innovation process? And the name to that innovation process is working backwards. Start with the customer and work backwards. So throughout all of this writing, one of the things we do is we feature the customer in very vivid manners. And and what are they experiencing? What What are they truly trying to get done? What's the job they're trying to do? And then go into solutioning of what we might do in order to fix that. So those are some of the the technique tricks to help get to completeness of thought 
and the ability to communicate it to others. It's not enough to understand it well as your small team. You have to be able to communicate it to others because anything in any sizable organization that's worthwhile pursuing, you know that you have to get others to participate in that change initiative. Yeah. So uh, a couple thoughts. One is I think we, we could certainly justify a second podcast because <laughs> the information is, is very interesting. And, and it comes down to not sort of over-relying on, on principles as much as you know, culture and, and how you actually do stuff, you know, in Jerry's terms. Well, can, I, can I kind of double-click on, on yeah. that, right? And, and I absolutely agree, right? Culture is what you do, right? Like that, that's, that's essentially what culture is. Principles is a way of upfront being deliberate about, well, what do, how do we operate, right? What do we want our culture to do? And for each principle, you have to develop mechanisms, right? Mechanisms are ways that you put that principle into practice. And so it's not just enough to have principles, but to have mechanisms or practices without a guiding aspect of what you're trying to get to can also lead you in erroneous and inconsistent manners. And so you need all elements of strategy, well-balanced principles, which state like this is what we believe in and, and, and the durable essence of what we're trying to accomplish, and then mechanisms to help. And if you have all of those, then you're truly building culture in what you believe in. Very good. One last question. One, one uh, sort of final point you'd like to make to execs around, around innovation and what they can learn from Amazon? Yeah, I think I think it comes down to resource. I, I kind of mentioned it already, but resource allocation and people think about resource allocation is just like budgeting. Where am I putting my my resources? Where are you putting your time? Where how are you actively educating and exploring new capabilities, new models, uh, the future, and educating yourself? so that you can truly be the leader for that innovation versus just the administrator of resources. One of the leadership principles at Amazon is, is called diving deep. And what it says is that the expectation of leaders is, is that they are builders and that they understand the details of concepts. That applies to understanding future concepts. And so one of the things I find in senior executives is, is they've gotten used to essentially being an administrator versus being a builder, right? Somebody who actually engineers and understands capabilities, processes, business models, and how customers operate. You need to resource allocate more of your time to the future to truly help make those important resource allocations and decisions you need to make relative to innovation. Great advice. So that wraps up this episode. And as always, I look forward to hearing thoughts from you, our listeners, about today's show. Please keep the conversation going. If you like the show, tell your friends. And please take a minute to rate our show or post a comment. Go to www.innovation360.com or your favorite podcast site to find out more and to listen to more shows. John, thank you very much for chatting with me. We may have to arrange a second podcast. Anytime, Jerry. Real pleasure. I look forward to, to collaborating in the future. Stay safe and see you next week. You've been listening to The Finnovate Show with Jerry Purcell. 
If you like the show, share it on your network and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can go to www.innovation360.com to listen to more shows, download the transcription from today's show, or to contact today's guest. This is The Finnovate Show, financial services innovators bringing you the future today. Today.